You love technology, you love your privacy, and you cherish freedom and the Constitution. This is our culture and our way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know very little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's RestoreTheNumber4TH.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is ammunition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots episode number two, recorded November 19th, 2016. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast, dated October 29th, 2016. My name is Chuck. And I'm Fong. And welcome to the Privacy Patriots podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. So, I'm sure we all want to vent about the results of this crazy election that we finally finished, but I'm sure our listeners have heard plenty. (laughs) So This has been one of the weirdest (laughs) elections I have ever seen in my life. I have voted in the last seven presidential elections. I think this one made number eight. And quite frankly, I have never seen one get this acrimonious. It was really, it was ridiculous. Yeah, so I... I I want to get back to that, but I almost want to take a breather from it for a second (laughs) because, you know, and and in a sense, if anything, it's prompt to get moving and start working on the issues that are important to you, you know, and for us, that's the erosion of the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. And as the podcast of Restore the Fourth, one of the things I can tell you that we've been pondering in Restore the Fourth lately is what are we about? And when I say that, meaning like, what's our community per se? And I almost want to put that forth to you and to the listeners, especially like we've made some comparisons to the gun rights movements in terms of the constitutional issues that we face in the Fourth Amendment and with privacy. But, uh, you know, if we go and look at what the gun rights movement has been about. It really has been about a community and a way of life in a way. And how do we characterize our community? And, you know, I I think we kind of noted on it in our beg for money. (laughs) (laughs) Truth. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think, I think we're about technology. We're about privacy. We're about freedom well, I mean, the the thing of it is, having our, our toys is very nice. Uh, having a, a, a smartphone in your pocket, having, well, let's put it this way. You know, like I mentioned, this was the eighth presidential election I've, I've voted in, and that says something about my age, and you're not far behind me. And the, the, the truth of it is, you know, both of us can remember you know, 8-bit computers that, that uh, had, you know, not even a... a, a a thousandth of the processing power of these these little tiny slabs of silicon that we carry in our pockets and that's a very appealing thing to have we like technology having technology is good but it it does seem to come with uh, it, 
at least for the moment, a price. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the impacts that these things do have on our privacy. And and it's up to us to mitigate that. But it's funny that you mention the 8-bit computers of yesteryear because it, it almost makes me nostalgic for time spent as a child <laughs> work you know working on that commodore 64 with my dad you know sitting there with compute gazette or one of those old computer magazines bite and Ahoy. and, and mm-hmm. uh the two of us kind of entering in basic programs and the two of us learning for the first time what computers were about because you know that we you and i grew up in in a era where it was the first time that regular people, young or old, could have a, a personal computer in their home, you know. So I think that's a big part of it, too. Like, you know, just like folks who are very passionate about the Second Amendment, about gun rights, a uh, big part of that passion is that they grew up going to the firing range with their dad. And, you know, for us, it was the same but different. Well, I mean, you know, on that on that same, on that very front, you know, my uh, I saw a post from one of my uh, sisters in law this uh, this very afternoon on on Facebook where she was saying that uh, she was basically asking everybody who had gone out hunting today, you know, what did they get? Yeah, you know, and and that's that's that type of culture that that comes out of that same culture. Yeah, and I mean, when I attend twenty six hundred meetings, when I when we I've gone to conferences like hope you kind of feel hey you know this this is kind of like this this is my I community found my people yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was the feeling yeah. i had after i went to a first to my first 2600 meeting i have found my people yeah yeah so i unfortunately i think we're we're entering into an era where our people are being threatened effectively because we you know this is what we're about this is who we are we love technology, but we cherish privacy and freedom. And we need to kind of draw a picture of what this community is so that we can then bring that community together. And I think that's a big part of what Restore the Fourth is trying to do. I think if we're being honest about it, our particular community, the technologists, have always been under some sort of threat. The big differences in, in, in this particular case uh, – we actually have some traction now that we can that we can use you know we actually have built a large part of this contemporary world that we live in and without us this wouldn't be here without us there wouldn't be that smartphone in your pocket uh and the 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 thing about it is that we can use this traction and so yeah you you kind of imply there a uh a sort of silver lining now that you know regardless of uh where you are left or right or really what you think of of donald trump um uh, you know just at the sheer notion that he's unpredictable as an individual <laughs> mm, <there's laughs> um truth to that uh makes for some scary imp- implications towards uh, privacy and encryption and civil liberties in general. I'm going to make a make an awkward confession here is that um, about halfway through the election, I half contemplated voting for Donald Trump in uh, what I would call a scorched earth fashion. 
Um, I, I, I'm not perfectly using the analogy, but in a sense, I felt if we had gotten Hillary in, it would just kind of be a continuation of uh, a sort of malaise that I felt that we've been experiencing, and as well as people kind of being complacent about a lot of issues, especially surveillance and privacy. And I feel like the silver lining here is that a lot more people are going to be worried about the implications of surveillance and privacy issues under an erratic leader <laughs> like, <laughs> like Trump. Well, I mean, as far as that goes, I've, I've felt for some time that nothing really motivates people like a crisis. And uh, I think certainly uh, a Trump presidency qualifies as it, if for no reason other than essentially we have now got a, uh, a tornado in the White House. And we don't know what he's going to do. You know, uh, we, we can look in and see who his appointments are. And based on that, we can kind of take a guess at what he's going to do. And I got to say, what I've seen so far for appointments is downright scary. I don't know if this is good or bad. The only precedent we have for him regarding encryption is the fact that he called for people to boycott Apple when they refused to open yeah, the center. he did. I mean, while I'm not happy with that, for sure, calling for a boycott was, uh, you know, still a democratic... Well, that's, that's Endeavor. very true. And, and, and quite bluntly, you know, that's that's a tool that's always been at everybody's disposal anyway. If you want to, uh, if you want to vote with your dollars, that is always your ability to do so, and that's that's very cool in in and of itself. But uh, yeah, I I I'm sorry. I just well, no, I'm not sorry. I just couldn't get behind the guy under any circumstances, quite frankly. And I, I did see a couple other people express the uh, the scorched earth approach to it. Uh, basically, for, for the record, I did not ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I really didn't. I really can't picture you uh, filling in that particular bubble, quite frankly. Um, Let's just burn it all down, and then we'll build it up. And that's kind of the thing that I, I heard a few better than expressing. before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah in, in my particular, in my particular case, yeah. uh, yes, it's, it's granted that that Hillary probably would have been, you know, at least four, if not eight, more years of the same. Yeah. Um, and I and let's let's be honest with it here. This is the reason, in my humble opinion, that uh, that Hillary lost the election to Trump is because of the fact that she was boring. You know, she didn't bring anything interesting to the table. She didn't bring any fire, any passion. Yeah. You know, and Bernie brought that. And, That's true. And, and unfortunately, didn't make it past the primaries. And uh, I still haven't figured that one out in any satisfactory way. But uh, we, we can we can leave that for, to, for the uh, conspiracy theorists to figure I, out. I was hoping us. for a Trump Sanders ticket. <laughs> that. You know, that's, what's funny about that is um, <laughs> the odd couple. Yeah, right. You know, what's very funny about that is that it seems like both of them spent a lot of time on the campaign explaining why – well, Bernie was explaining why he wasn't Trump and Trump why he wasn't Bernie. <laughs> and it – I, to quote Shakespeare, me, me thinks, or to paraphrase, me thinks thou dost protest too much. Uh. Um, it, there's, uh, I, I think in the in the end, uh, both Bernie and Trump brought a lot of the same interesting things to the table. 
the major difference is not so much what they wanted to do as it is how they wanted to do it. They had almost dead opposite approaches to it. You know, it's like if you want to build a house, you can you can use a, a stick-built structure or you could build it out of cinder blocks. And those are two different ways of doing the, doing the same thing in the end, but the actual process of the doing is radically different. Now, to my point of a silver lining, uh, if you take that in reverse um, where we find people all, all of a sudden perhaps – more interested in surveillance and privacy issues uh, with an impending Trump administration. Part of me is also kind of like, where were you? You know, like <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, you gave Obama a pass. Like, for instance, this week, uh, Evan Greer at Time Magazine uh, put out a uh, an editorial saying President Obama should shut down the NSA mass spying before it's too late, you know. Well, where, uh, what where about the mass spying ago? last yeah. eight years ago, you know? <laughs> well, I guess eight years ago we didn't really – we only suspected it. We didn't truly know it. About when did uh, – about, about when was it that's, that Snowden made his uh, revelations? Uh, 2013. 13? Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So basically three years ago. Where, where were these guys three years ago? You know, yeah. Of course, <laughs> for those of us who were paying attention, you know, we may have known a little bit before Snowden uh, – made his revelations i mean there there were a couple other whistleblowers before him they just didn't uh make quite as big of a splash because they they uh made the mistake of not fleeing the country in in the process but now speaking of paying attention <laughs> more people paying attention um i noticed there's been kind of this flurry uh to uh, more people wanting to jump on encrypted apps and oh, uh, I using was encrypted you mention that <laughs> i don't know if this happened to you but literally the day after the election uh if any of you use signal from open whisper systems you know that when new people install it <laughs> if if they're in your contacts it'll pop up and say hey so and so is on signal say hi and i was just getting bing bing, bing all day <laughs> the day after the election <laughs> yeah that Did doesn't you know surprise me in the least and i was i'm actually trying to look up right now there was a um somebody posted on reddit actually what the numbers were on the, the increase in signal uh, subscriptions, yeah. it, it was really kind of impressive. I heard they crashed the servers. Did they really? <laughs> and also, um, Proton Mail, the uh, encrypted email service out of Switzerland, uh, noted uh, it was something to the effect of due to the nature of neutrality, uh, being a Swiss company, we have no comment on the election, <laughs> but we are very happy to have, you know, 10, I don't know if it was tens or hundreds of thousands of new users that signed up. <laughs> That's nice. That's real nice. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually very funny to hear them, uh, to hear them do the, do, do the whole, uh, their own ver it's like their own variation of plausible denial almost we can neither confirm nor deny that we may or may not have have had the introduction of of however many thousands of new users and thank you very much for signing up <laughs> you're winning sir yeah well uh, the 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 trump win is obviously the biggest news uh at this time but there there's a lot of other notable items we should uh, toss around um first off one 
that uh, is not brand new, but I, I wanted to toss it in just because we're brand new and we didn't get a, a chance to touch on the fact that um, uh, Senator Burr and, of North Carolina and uh, Diane Feinstein of California are uh, at it again. Earlier in the year, in, they tried to uh, pass a bill that would have put restrictions on encryption to the point that they would force American software companies to put backdoors in any and, and products let me, that they Let me made. point this out here because I think this is a very important thing to understand. We individually, Fong and I both are absolutely partisan. There's no question about it whatsoever. But we as the, as the privacy patriots are nonpartisan concept. And I want to make this very clear. And this point makes this very clear why. Richard Burr, Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina is a Republican. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California is a Democrat. This is an issue that both sides of this issue span both sides of the aisle. So if you are not particularly interested in, in going and, and speaking to a particular representative or senator because of the fact that they're from the other side of the aisle from you, please think about that. Think about the fact that you might actually be able to make common cause with them on this particular issue, and you absolutely should reach out with the with the olive branch. And uh, the bill that they were originally working on got squashed, thank God, earlier in the year. But the news, uh, not this week, but uh, I think we're uh, going back to the end of September here, is that um, they're digging it back up and trying to, put it back on the road and and uh, with some minor changes trying to get this bill to come back from the grave the ori- original like i said would have required device manufacturers software developers and isps to decrypt encrypted data or offer quote technical assistance as is necessary if ordered by a court anywhere in the country now they're kind of making a bit of a narrower scope you know the original discussion draft required a quote covered entity to render encrypted data intelligible to government agents bearing a court order if the data had been rendered unintelligible quote by a feature product or service owned controlled created or provided by the covered entity or by a third party on behalf of the covered entity but of course this brings us back to our old friend the national security letter that we spoke about last time Mm. You know, here we have, uh, I, I think it is arguable that a national security letter is a court order. I think those are usually produced by the, the FISA court, are they not? Mm. And uh, with that thought in mind, that's essentially a court order. And uh, as we discussed last time around, they don't get to tell you that it's been issued. And and we'll you'll hear some, some more about that in the interview section that we have later on this evening. Oh, but rest easy. The new form of their bill adds the phrase reasonable efforts to the definition of the technical assistance portion of the bill. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So as long as you make a reasonable effort, then you're within the law. I, I don't know how you make uh, reasonable efforts to uh, crack end-to-end encryption and if that's... <laughs> Well, I think if we go back to the uh, to to the the Apple iPhone case uh, from, um, I guess that was last year at this point, wasn't it? Where the uh, 
where Apple was was basically being compelled to produce a, a solution to decrypt a phone. Yeah, the San Bernardino yeah, incident is what Bernardino spawned bomb. all yeah. of this. Yeah, exactly. And um, the thing of it is, I think that uh, the, the problem with this particular wording is that what they could have asked Apple to do or what they were asking Apple to do could be interpreted as a reasonable effort. So the bottom line is this really does not provide us with that much protection at all, having those extra words in there. So that's a, that's a Trojan horse. So the other big news this week is that the head of the NSA, James Clapper, announced that he's stepping down. I don't I'm know. Not that, sure what to make of that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Part of me wonders: uh, Does he want to get out before he has blood on his hands? It's but, possible. But he's still going to leave all the knives in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. I mean, here's the thing. And last time round i mis- i mistakenly attributed some something that uh that clapper said i mistakenly attributed to james comey okay uh but it is it essentially this is the guy who told congress who, to- who told a, a hearing in congress that they do not collect uh well let me see i'm not going to try to get the exact wording that was asked to him but essentially it was do they collect recordings of of people's uh, uh of people's phone calls or or of the the metadata about uh who's calling whom and so on and his answer this is an exact quote was no sir and uh the the response that came back was uh, are you sure and he, he essentially said not wittingly we might accidentally pick up some extra data okay. well here's the thing this was before well, let me think. Was this before or after Snowden? I think this was a little bit before Snowden came uh, and and uh, uh, dropped his particular bomb. But it was after uh, Bill Binney had dropped his. Mm-hmm. You know, one that, that the other whistleblower. Yeah, the other, one of the other whistleblowers. Yeah, this, this this one had gone off and and didn't really get noticed. But because of the fact that I had been aware of it, this is the reason why when when Clapper said that. I knew before the echo of his voice died in the Senate chamber that that was a lie. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think? Is a good riddance? Uh, hey, yeah. Well, you, you've heard, I'm sure, the expression "the devil you know." Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Only only time is going to tell what what particular abomination will be taking his place. So we'll we'll have to. I'm I'm going to withhold judgment on that one. I'm a good riddance. Okay, yeah, sure, why not? But seriously, I have no idea what we're in for as a as a successor. Well, um, the other big news has nothing to do with the election or even America. Across the pond, the UK dropped their surveillance bill. Uh, that's that Edward Snowden is calling like the the greatest surveillance legislation ever put forth in a Western nation. It's going to give the UK government sweeping powers. They're making ISPs keep a year's worth of metadata on all their users for access, just in case. It, they're calling it the quote unquote Snoopers Charter. <laughs> the bill provides the UK government and its security services with mass surveillance powers that provides the government with the ability to enforce tech companies that apply with orders to hack into users' devices to assist law enforcement authorities Hmm. in accessing data 
And in, additionally, there's a clause that would force tech firms to uh, hand over advance access to any new products or services slated to be launched in the UK. Well, you know who's going to be the biggest winners on this one? Who? Is going to be the storage ma- makers, you know, oh. Hitachi's and the EMC's and the NetApp's, because <laughs> this is the the amount of data that is being asked to be retained here is beyond immense. Just sitting and looking at the amount of data flowing over over a single household network can be mind numbing, and and just imagine watching what's going over everybody's network all the time. Yeah, that's that's not going to be a very easy task to manage. Yeah, I can't speak to the UK as a whole, but I've always known that at least London has been... The um, most surveilled city in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think they have... I don't know what the the percentage of cameras per square foot or whatever, but uh, I do know they have cameras that are manned with PA systems where an officer back at HQ can be watching you do something naughty and yell at you through the PA, (laughs) you know, when you... Drop I think a piece of litter on the them. ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> would you believe, though, uh, and this this probably won't surprise you a whole lot, uh, but there's actually even so much as a, a television show that uh, appears in the UK, and uh, this particular show is like cops for surveillance. Okay, it, it's 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 literally it's like watching an episode of Cops. Except that instead of focusing on the police officers and what they're doing, it's focusing on the surveillance operators and what they're doing. Okay. And I, I, I don't know what kind of an audience this show has, but I, I know I, I know about this show largely because... I, we know who the stars are. <laughs> the British people. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Did you hear also that Obama has uh, come out and say he's refusing to pardon Edward Snowden. No, I, I had not I, I had not stumbled across that one, and that's very unfortunate because I think Snowden has done this country a great service and taken a, a great personal sacrifice to do it. Yet Der Spiegel in Germany during an interview asked uh, if he would, and he said, I can't pardon someone who hasn't gone before a court and presented themselves, so that's not something that i would even comment on at this wow point. so for all of those who were hoping and making those petitions it doesn't sound no no <laughs> doesn't no, sound it really good doesn't. Yeah. On, on the local end of things and we are in new york and a little later we'll be getting to an interview with a guest from the new york civil liberties union who uh, is working on some uh, some good privacy legislation for once but apparently uh the new york district attorney is uh going after apple again and you know i think we've we've made note in a lot of cases how uh, the fight for privacy the and the fight for civil liberties exists on all levels local state and federal now is this the the uh new york state da or the new york uh, city da uh let's see this is new york county so that would be new york yeah city, that was, right? okay this is cyrus vance mm-hmm. yeah yep mm-hmm. cyrus vance yeah. Basically, he's made a renewed call for federal legislation requiring Apple to make iOS, quote, warrant-friendly. Yeah, he um, was very uh, very outspoken during the San Bernardino mm-hmm. fallout. Yeah, yeah, I remember he had the press conference with Chuck Schumer yep. about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's claiming that the NYPD have over 400 locked iPhones in their possession that 
could be used to investigate serious crimes if only Apple would help. Yeah. Um, Somehow I don't see that help forthcoming. (laughs) So with the incoming administration, I'm assuming as the cabinet starts to get filled, we're going to discover all sorts of new characters that will likely present new threats to privacy and encryption and civil liberties. But there are plenty of folks already that have done a good job of that. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few. But there there are also um, a number of people, the good few, who have actually put their neck out on the line to protect our Fourth Amendment rights and protect digital privacy. And I think we should recognize some of those. So with that, I want to introduce a new segment we're going to do called Patriots and Pariahs. So in this segment, Patriots and Pariahs, each episode we're going to focus on one person that's been a great defender of privacy and Fourth Amendment rights, a patriot. And another individual who has done great to harm privacy and Fourth Amendment freedoms. And this week's patriot is Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon. He's a Democrat. And um, I can't think of someone in Congress, at least, currently, who has been more outspoken about privacy rights and concerns about surveillance and protecting encryption specifically. One of the few people in Congress, I think, who actually has a good understanding on how encryption works and what the implications are. He's been serving since 1996, but on another note, he took a lone stand against PIPA, or PIPA, PIPA, however you want to put it. Yeah, Yeah. a couple of different The Protect IP Act, which Mm -hmm. was the Senate bill that correlated with SOPA. Most of us uh, know the dreaded SOPA moniker, but the two of them kind of went together, in my understanding. Yeah, uh, I always heard them. I always heard them uttered in the same uh, in the yeah. same sentence. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that bell was going to be kind of a copyright holder's Christmas present. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Where we could start making ISPs be policemen, making them responsible. <laughs> for what uh, their users did. Yeah, and anybody that knows uh, even the slightest, even just taking a second and looking at it critically, it, it's inherently obvious that this is a very dangerous uh, thing to ask. You know, let's let's just use an analogy, for instance, here. You go into certain places of business and you will see a bulletin board on the wall, just a plain piece of cork board with, uh, you know, thumbtacks or push pins available to just hang stuff up. You see these, you know, restaurants, uh, grocery stores, everywhere. And essentially, any person can come by at any time and hang any material on this board as a public notice, uh, advertisement, whatever. You got a small business, you hang your business card there. You got a, a political candidate you want to uh, support, you hang their their uh, flyer there, etc., etc. And essentially... What SOPA and PIPA were requesting, I use the word lightly, what these were, were setting up as a regime where if you are the owner of such a bulletin board, and this is obviously in analogy, if you're the owner of such a bulletin board, you are responsible for everything that everybody posts on that board. And if we move this into the online world, we're talking about things like, okay, 
somebody comes along and posts up, uh, let's, let's, let's just say they say something particularly scandalous about, uh, you know, pick your candidate, you know, Hillary or, or Trump or Jill or, or Gary or whoever. You, you come along and you post up something absolutely scandalous and absolutely false and they turn around and they take down Facebook because of it. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of nonsense we're talking about when we when we talk about uh, uh, these particular two acts. That's why they were so incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Because, it, you know, the scenario you, are, you just described seems more fitting for, uh, you know, a totalitarian regime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the sort of, you know, like I've, like I've said before, this is the sort of thing that belongs in North Korea. Not here. <laughs> well, thank you to Senator Wyden for preventing that from happening. But on the other side of it, he actually proposed uh, the Secure Data Act, which um, would have protected companies uh, from forcing backdoors into their products and increased government transparency and surveillance laws. So he's actually trying to make legislation that's going to... Yeah, he's making, making legislation that's actually going to help support what we're trying to do. He spoke at RightsCon, so, I mean, just by name, anybody who speaks at RightsCon <laughs> is probably <laughs> a friend of the Constitution. If you check out our post for this, we'll have a link to our wiki entry for Senator Wyden, where further you can link to the full content of that speech. Most recently, Senator Wyden said that he will filibuster if Trump goes after encryption. I mean, this, talk about being proactive, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, this, is, this is where it, it could get very interesting because uh, it, essentially filibustering is, a, is a, a weird construct, but it essentially gives power to the minority in Congress. And right now it's looking like uh, we're going to end up with minority Democrats. But as I said before... You know the issues we're dealing with here are really kind of you know panpartisan, yeah. and it's very nice to know that there's at least one senator in that body who is going to stand up and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk this thing to death. And just to fill in, that's the definition of a filibuster. <laughs> and the show maybe could be an example, but <laughs> <laughs> but. Um... Even if you go on Senator Wyden's website, in his press releases, notes that he's dedicated to protecting strong encryption to safeguard Americans' private data, overhauling the third-party doctrine to make clear individuals do not lose their privacy rights just because they share some of their personal information with a particular company, increasing transparency by holding at least three congressional hearings each year on the privacy impacts of surveillance laws, authorities, and practices. How, how would you like that? Nice. Being on high alert for fresh attempts to undermine checks on government power, and here's the biggest one to me, promoting the hire of people who understand technology in government. Oh, my <laughs> word. We couldn't possibly have that. And uh, I'll leave... Leave off about Senator Biden with a wonderful quote he had. Uh, he said, For centuries, individual liberty was protected by technological limitations. Gathering real-time personal information about a country's entire population was impossible. It would have required more resources than any government could muster. Mm -hmm. This kind of speaks very much to what I was talking about last time round when we... Um 
I, I never bothered to look up where who it was. I want to say it was East Germany that had made recordings of everybody's phone calls, but mm-hmm. they just lacked the uh, yeah. processing power to analyze them. I mean, the that. NSA prison programs and the others, I mean, they're basically like an East German Stasi's wet dream. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no kidding. I mean, it, they could have only imagined having the power. I mean, this this uh, this third party doctrine is one that really kind of rubs me raw, because if you if you think about this for a second, essentially it's saying that because you can't make a phone call without the phone company's assistance, uh, that phone call is is basically something that is discoverable without having to bother you. Yeah. Uh, because of the fact that you are, are deliberately taking in, and putting your information in somebody else's hands mm-hmm. when you make that phone call. But, I mean, the analogy completely breaks down. If you stop and you think about this for a second, it's almost miraculous that this same principle does not also apply, say, for instance, to an apartment that you rent. Yeah. Think about this for a second. That's somebody else's property, you know? And you are basically able to put your belongings in that space and know that they will be safe, theoretically. I know physical limitations apply, of course. But theoretically, that those that, that all of your property in your apartment is safe yeah. from a search and a seizure unless a warrant is uh, unless a warrant is issued against. You. I mean, the bottom line is that your landlord can't let the police no. into your apartment. So why should Yahoo or Gmail? The landlord can't even let himself into your property <laughs> unless it's a, a or into your apartment unless it's a uh, an emergency. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the other half of this segment, we name our pariah of this episode, which is Senator Richard Burr. Republican from North Carolina. Oh, yes. Uh, And as we noted, he was one half of the the duo behind the uh, encryption backdoor. Yeah, Baron Feinstein. We'll come to to Diane in another episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's been uh, a senator since 2005. And like I noted, he attempted with Feinstein to put forth Senate bill that would effectively ban end-to-end encryption and force American software developers to insert backdoors into their products. But he also voted yes to reauthorize the Patriot Act and uh, extend the expiring provisions of the Patriot Act that allowed roving wiretaps and sweeping collection of data as directed by secret FISA courts. And I want to, I want to kind of bring a focus on this one particular point too. Mm-hmm. It, the whole the whole thing is that the Patriot Act, all of the surveillance that is being done under the auspices of this act is being done supposedly in the name of national security. Mm-hmm. And if it's about national security, one would think that you should be focusing on perceived threats, not focusing on everybody. Mm-hmm. If that may be called focusing, I guess. I don't know. So he also voted yes on a bill that would have removed the need for a FISA warrant for wiretapping abroad. And as we know, there's not a nice, neat way to often exclude Americans from uh, the dragnet, even when you, quote unquote, target only international calls or international communications. Well, I mean, let's let's take a look at that one for a second here. 
A lot of the theory here uh, accords more respect uh, to American citizens and American residents than to residents and citizens of other other countries in the world, simply because of the fact that it is our land to which the Constitution belongs. So the constitutional rights apply here. Mm-hmm. Um, and in theory, they don't afford any protection from our government to anybody that doesn't live here, isn't a citizen, doesn't reside here. And a perfect example here, let's let's say that some target in the UK was picked out, and I'm just picking that at random, but let's say some target in the UK was picked out, and they have a conversation with somebody who's in the US. Well, telephone conversations go both ways. If you're listening in on that telephone conversation, you are surveilling an American citizen. And uh, he also voted yes on a narrowly defeated bill to expand what information the FBI could collect from technology companies via the dreaded national security letters. It would have allowed the FBI to secretly obtain what websites someone visits, how long, their IP address, social media activity, email headers, and, and more. Um, and then lastly, we noted he is teaming up with Senator Feinstein again to revive their attempt to legislate against strong encryption yeah. technology. Really what it comes down to is these efforts, no good can come of it. It's as simple as that. So that's our Patriots and Pariahs for this episode. Senator Wyden, thank you. And Senator Burr, redacted. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering whether or not you were going to actually use that word. <laughs> so um, on, on the regional front, and we, you know, we are up here in Albany, New York, in the capital region, you know, there's a lot of fights happening on state levels as well to protect privacy rights. And the, the New York Civil Liberties Union has been a big proponent of that and has been doing a lot of work in that area. And uh, earlier we got to speak to Rashida Richardson, who's a legal counsel at the New York Civil Liberties Union, about a, a bill that they're trying to pass here in New York called the New York ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And today we're joined by Rashida Richardson from the NYCLU. Thanks for taking the time out to join us. And um, it sounds like you've got something in the works at the Assembly in New York State. Yeah. Um, So earlier this year during the 2016 session, we worked on a bill that's a New York version of Cal-ECPA, which was a modified version of the Federal Electronic Communications and Privacy Act which um, elevator speech-wise, it would require law enforcement to get a warrant before accessing your digital data. So that would include email, social media, um, text or phone calls or any other um, logs from your phone and any other uh, metadata collected um, through any electronic device. So the other bill that you mentioned, uh, can you repeat the name of that? Oh, so I believe last year or the year before, or actually Two years ago, um, California passed the California Electronic Communications Act. Um, That effort was led by our affiliate office in California. And so coming up into, at the end of last year, we worked with their office to just review um, their bill and then modify it so that way it was applicable with New York law. And then we made a few other um, changes that just made sense for situations um, or, or, or made more sense just procedurally here. 
Yeah, we've often noted that as goes New York, often goes California, and or vice versa. Of, yeah, and vice versa. Yeah, and then hopefully, ultimately, the country. Um, <laughs> so you know, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. But it sounds like we can be happy that you know a big state like california passed a bill like this and hopefully new york will follow in the footsteps now do i mean do you know anything about how it managed to pass out west yeah so uh, one thing that is good is i think new york legislators are fair, well aware that california is ahead of us most of the time um so that's usually a good um sign is when we can say california did it then it's like okay then it naturally comes to New York, um, the California bill uh, passed in one session. Luckily, California doesn't have a lot of the same legislative issues we have in Albany and that it's very hard to get a bill passed in Albany. But I think one of the th- things that helped in the California effort is that they had support from a broad coalition um, of both tech companies and community organizations. And ultimately, there was backlash from law enforcement, but because there was so much um, support within the legislature and from the community on all sides, they eventually um, removed their or revoked their opposition to the bill, and it passed. Now, and uh, a similar measure also just passed this year in Connecticut. Oh, that's awesome. Now, California, if I understand correctly, has got the ability to have a, a voter initiative. Is that correct? Yes, but this was actually, this came out of um, the ACLU Northern California's office. So they we kind of look to them and work with them a lot on privacy, technology, and surveillance-related issues. And um, they had been working on this bill and, and working with other organizations like EFF to get broader community support. Um, but in general, this our bill, their bill, Connecticut, and a few other states that have um, introduce similar measures. We're all doing this because of the failure for any reform to happen on the federal level. Um, so it's not the most ideal situation to have a patchwork of different states with regulations, but it's better than um, the federal standard, which is the bill or a law that was um, written in the 1980s. Uh, that's excellent, because I was actually going to bring that up. Um, I wanted to, to ask you about uh, your thoughts on how the federal ECPA law, because I, I read it actually sometime about 20 some odd years ago, and uh, I know that obviously a law that age that pertains to technology must have some obsolescence to it. So can you tell me a little bit about what its current shortcomings are? Yeah, so the bill was, I think, written in 1986, so before commercial <laughs> um, email was available or really computers were as accessible and personal devices as they are today. So it's really archaic because it failed to foresee the sort of technological revolution that was forthcoming. Um, so there's a lot of shortcomings in the law. Um, one of the specific issues is some of the definitions they're very broad because it was a definition to define what existed in 1986. But, um, and I can't tell you it off of the top of my head right now, but because it's so vast in scope, it pretty much covers everything and gives um, law enforcement sort of the right to have access to everything um, without a warrant. So currently in New York State and pretty much every state except for California and Connecticut, 
um, law enforcement is more often than not using lower court orders to get access to all of our digital data. Um, so it really just is way too expansive and doesn't really um, take into account where we are now in a, as a digital age. Now, how much of that is dependent on the third-party doctrine? Um, there are different issues. So the Electronic Communications Privacy Act is under the Stored Communications Act. Um, so it's a whole body of law dealing with digital data in different forms. Um, and third, so it, it, it is covered by law. It's just the laws in that. So it's not that the third-party doctrine will kick in and that's why access is available, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it kind of yes. It's it's. I know that that law is a, a a very complicated matter at times because of the fact that you have laws upon laws upon laws that might come into play, and that's just for the sake of our listeners. Could you describe what the third party doctrine refers to? So the third party doctrine generally refers to information that we generate um, that's. Then it goes to third parties, so let's say like a Google or a Facebook or some type of advertising company, and um, once we give that data away, we no longer have ownership for, over it. So though one may think you should have protections over certain data, once you give it away to another party, it's out of your control. So you touched on the fact that this bill is looking to create reform, but can you describe the climate or, in general, what we're presently dealing with that needs reform? Yeah, so right now it's reforming loopholes from the federal law that is allowing law enforcement to access digital data without any type of standards or limitations. Um, so... Our bill is actually a whole new act. It's not reforming um, any criminal law or procedural rules. It's just creating a new law because it's dealing with a whole new area that's not really applicable in any other um, part of New York State bills and laws. Um, So that's what it's covering. And I think one other important thing that I didn't mention before when defining Um, what the electronic data is that's covered by this law is that it also covers location data. So I know one thing that I'm assuming many of your listeners may be concerned about is the use of certain surveillance technologies like Stingrays, um, which can track one's location, and that a Stingray use would be covered by this law. So as of right now, law enforcement's generally obtaining these Stingray devices that uh, intercept cell phone conversations without any oversight either by the phone company or by judicial bodies. So this would potentially rein that in? Yeah. So we we do have a Stingray bill that we worked on last um, session that we are hoping to introduce and support um, this upcoming session. But this bill will cover location data. So to the extent that either law enforcement is going to a cell phone provider to get information about your location data through cell site um, sort of pairing down of locations or using a stingray, they would have to get a warrant to get your location data either way. Now, of course, I think one of the things that, that strikes me as, as obvious, though, and and maybe I'm mistaken about this, would, would it be 
correct in thinking that by this being a New York state law, it's not going to have any impact on federal law enforcement agencies, uh, you know, FBI or, or whoever? No, and unfortunately, that's one of our major concerns because um, when I've been talking about this bill with people in light of the election, one of the things that I mentioned is that Trump has been for mass surveillance. He wanted to oppose uh, or have people protest Apple during the encryption debate and has made a number of statements where it's clear that he has no respect for privacy rights um, and is very into mass surveillance. Um, so that is a major concern, but this bill will not cover federal agencies. The only way it could is if there was some type of cooperative um, agreement, where the, which does exist in New York State, where sometimes a federal agency will work with NYPD on a case. And if NYPD was to request um, information in relation to something that they're working on in conjunction with a federal agency, that would be covered because it's still a um, state law enforcement agency. But even though I think threats from federal agencies is a concern, I also think the flip side to some of um, the president-elect's platforms and positions is that he's also emboldened a lot of people who share his beliefs to act. So um, while we have had some um, assurances from the governor's office that we that like we can depend on state police to follow the law or to respect certain civil liberties. We can't have the same guarantees for local police, and I think that's one of our major concerns. Is a lot of what we're looking at is local police getting access to data um, of all kinds and not using warrants for most of the times that they are um, asking for these requests. Now I've got an informal question for you and at this point part of your answer may be the trump administration but that aside i want to ask what is with cops these days (laughs) and and sorry sorry to sound seinfeldian but even if you go back and watch something like the french connection which really paints a good picture of the bad old days of policing where you see popeye doyle you know roughing up all sorts of suspects and stuff but even he understood that he needed a warrant before he could get a wiretap and uh yeah. now nowadays cops are just like if i can do it if if i can physically do it then i'm going to do it and, and even taking that a step yeah, further in some it's cases it's unfortunate the- because now law enforcement has access to more data than they ever have in all of history, yet they still want more. Um, And I don't have the statistics, but I do know a colleague once said, like, and it's not the access to additional information isn't really changing the outcomes that much. But I think partially in New York State, um, part of the sort of excessive want for more information beyond what we see as necessary um, is sometimes law enforcement is I, I find that law enforcement often uses national security very vaguely as a concern when it's in fact there's just local domestic issues really no issues at all so straightforward answer I don't really know <laughs> But there definitely has been a change in policing and I think a change in expectations around what is necessary and needed to still carry out one's duties. It almost seems that there's a complete 
forgetfulness of the pledge that they swore to the Constitution and the fact that they're there not only to keep the peace but to uphold our our rights and liberties. Yeah, well, I don't know if I want to. Um, That's fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then we may, I would have we to may want to back that one out. Hat. <laughs> but um, you're not only our first guest, but this is actually our first time getting into some nitty gritty on uh, legislation to protect privacy. But uh, you know, our listeners may not be all that familiar with, you know, at least in New York State or in general at state levels. What it takes for a bill to become a law and what processes you have to go through to try to make this a reality. Can you share a bit of that with us? Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, uh, New York State has one of the most corrupt legislatures and dysfunctional. So there's about, I think, 30,000 really? bills that are introduced a year um, and very few make it through. And for the past uh, session, or the past two sessions, there was a split between the houses. So the assembly is controlled by the Democrats, and the Senate, there's a split. So there's a minority of Democrats, a slight majority of Republicans, and then there were a group of Democrats that defected from the party and became um, known as the IDC, the Independent Democratic Caucus. And they typically vote along with the Republicans. So even though numbers-wise it doesn't look like the Republicans have a solid majority, they have, in fact, had a voting majority in the Senate. So there's been this sort of split and dysfunction that we see on the federal level of we can get progressive reform through the Assembly, but then you, like, hit a wall once you get to the Senate unless you it's a measure that you can get bipartisan support or at least enough support from the IBC to switch sides. Luckily, um, privacy issues is one of those areas that we can find bipartisan support because of varying interests. There are Republicans and even IDC members that get these issues and understand the concerns, even if sometimes it's just on a business um, interest level. But the one change that's happening this year and which makes it really hard for a lot of us to strategize on our issues for next year, is we're still waiting to see what the election outcome was in our state Senate um, because there's three contested elections. And currently the Republicans had a majority by, I think, one or two votes. So this election was very crucial for a possible flipping of the House or splitting the vote. And instead we saw... Um, some individuals switched parties from Democrats to the Independent Democratic Caucus and a new member be voted on to the IDC. And three of the pending elections, if they go Republicans, then the Republicans will actually have a numerical majority in the Senate, which leaves this big question of what will the IDC do? So this is a long explanation to say that it's complicated. But in order to get a law passed, it's the same sort of system that we saw in that cartoon video, Schoolhouse Rock, where it's a bicarmel um, legislature and a bill can be introduced in either house and it has to pass through um, both and then it goes to the governor to either sign or veto. And that process of getting to the governor can take the pretty much the full calendar year. So you could have a bill that presumably passes in March but the governor can wait until December 31st to sign it 
or not sign it. Well, could you paint a picture for us what your part of this is like? And, you know, since I've been lucky enough to pound the pavement with you a bit, I can say it's probably, I'm going to assume it's going to involve the L word lobbying. But um, (laughs) if you could kind of elaborate what your day to day is like. Um, Yes. So I actually am a registered lobbyist with the New York Civil Liberties Union. And our department very much functions like some of the um, lobbying firms in that we have to do everything in-house, so the legislative and legal analysis, writing bills, strategy, developing statewide advocacy and community organizing plans, and direct lobbying um, and education of legislators. Um With this bill and many others, um, we tried to leverage and use our relationship with legislators to sort of get intel about strategy, but also um, figure out where there may be um, sort of holes that we can't see because we're technical experts. So we may write something that makes no sense or doesn't make sense procedurally. So even with um, this bill, it was super helpful because our bill um, luckily did pass out of the codes committee, which is the committee that deals with like legal issues, um, and typically a one house bill does not pass out of any committee, especially late in the session, because they see it as not going anywhere. So that was a good sign of the law being legally viable and being supported. And both in last session and after the session, um, I've talked to staff in the assembly to sort of walk through questions that we sort of were thinking about regarding amendments or issues where they thought we should maybe tweak the language because it didn't make quite, like it didn't make sense for them reading it, what I was describing that the law said. So those types of relationships are helpful because it not only helps me as the person drafting and coming up with the public education documents um, behind legislation to sort of have a better understanding of all aspects and obstacles coming our way, but it also sort of helps me get in the mind of a legislator so then when we have lobby visits or are doing any other formal communication with legislators or their staff, you can come with an understanding of certain issues and concerns that they may have, so we already have the answers available. Now, when people hear the word lobbying, they typically picture a corporate interest that's trying to influence politicians in their favor. But one, uh, I always remind people that anyone, at least at the state level, you still have the opportunity to yourself lobby. And I'm lucky enough to have the proximity being here in Albany to do that. It really just amounts to door knocking. But going back to that stereotype of the corporate lobbyist, do you see any movement where corporate interests in the technology industry may actually start coming on board with some of our issues because it may hit them in the pocketbook? And if so, have you seen any results of that in terms of their lobbying? Yeah, so this bill is a great example of that because even though we have worked on privacy technology and surveillance issues prior to this year, this was the first year we've had we've developed relationships with the tech community and they've been very supportive of this legislation, including lending us their lobbyists to pound the pavement and knock on doors. Um and I think part of it I think part of it is because it's just a good consumer affairs piece where 
it only helps, like, as consumers care more and more about privacy, it only helps for tech companies to say, we're trying our best or we're taking these measures to ensure your privacy. Um, but also on the back end for a lot of the tech companies, without this law passing, it's been expensive for them um, outside of what consumers think because when they have attempted to challenge these government requests for consumer data, recently it's been found that they don't have standing to challenge. And um, this is because of sort of convoluted part of the federal law where a government agency can go to, let's say, Facebook and request a bulk amount of user accounts. So they'll say, give us all the information on these 300 people's accounts. And then they attach a gag clause to the request. So Facebook then cannot tell any of those users that their information was requested. Then they have to fulfill the request. And then even if they don't want to, they have no standing to challenge it in court. So it creates this situation where you as a user are having your information taken. You have no idea your information is being taken. And even though the company has an interest in not doing it, they can't really do anything about it. So what's next for the NYECPA as it figuratively travels up the Capitol steps? Yeah, so it's already, we have a slightly amended version, and part of this was from our conversation with assembly staff of sections, particularly dealing with law enforcement procedural issues. We kind of soften the language, so that way when we know we get the opposition from law enforcement, some of the arguments that they previously could say, we could say, actually, it's not that difficult. Um, so we amended the bill. It's, going, it's in the process of being reintroduced now. Our sponsor, Assemblyman Denowitz, puts, like, they, like I said, th- over 30,000 bills are introduced in New York. So tons of bills are being introduced right now. But it, because a new um, sort of legislative session is starting next year, every bill that's introduced needs a new bill number. So we won't have a bill number until the end of the year, maybe the beginning of next year. And right now we're waiting to see what the outcome of the Senate races are so we can figure out who is the most strategic person um, to approach to be the Senate sponsor. We still are interested in having bipartisan support of the bill, but it's more of a calculation of is it possible, and if we don't do that, what are the consequences to that, and part of this all um, depends on the outcome of the election, which I think will be decided slightly after Thanksgiving. So right now we're sort of doing the sit and wait to see what will happen and then approach a senator um, before the end of the year and hopefully go into next session with the Senate Companion Bill. And we're also organizationally, in light of the presidential election, I think going to really be putting a lot of energy and capacity behind um, a number of our privacy and technology issues. And we're possibly going to package this bill with another bill introduced by Assemblyman Dinowitz that's dealing with protections for social media passwords and usernames for employees and students. So right now we're sort of in strategy mode of figuring out what our capacity is since there's a lot of issues we're going to have to work on next year and what we may package together to move things along swiftly. We also have been raising this issue with the governor's office because I think he's looking to see what he can do either through executive orders 
or just generally in light of the um, election outcome to make sure that civil liberties are at least protected within New York State's borders. So I think for now we're just going to try to continue to keep this issue visible and as we get more intel, decide the most strategic next steps possible. Now, you said something there that caught my attention. Could you go back a second and talk a little bit more about social media passwords uh, with respect to employers and uh, students? Yeah, so that's another bill that was introduced by the same sponsor of the New York Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And the short version is that it would prohibit an employer or an educational institution from requiring a student or employee to provide their username, password, or any combination of the two or other form of authentication information to either punish or not hire someone or not allow the student in the school, or there's a number of situations that it would apply to, but essentially it's giving more social media privacy to students and employees understanding that those dynamics could be fairly coercive, and and it's really only protecting private information, so the example I usually give is if someone has a public Twitter account where if you Google their name and it pops up and there's something written there um, that your employer wants access to, this law won't protect that public um, facing information. But if you have a private account and um, your employer or an educational institution would need access to more information to see um, whatever they're looking for, this uh, law would prohibit them from asking or even coercing an individual into giving that information. It really is truly absurd, you know, some of these instances that we've heard of where employers would demand login access to people's social media so that they can see, I, I don't know what they want to see, what they're really about. It's almost as if an employer wouldn't hire you until you let them come into your bedroom and dig through your drawers. Well, well, what I find bothersome about it especially is that I was under the impression that this wasn't even a thing anymore, to use the term of the, the terminology of the Internet. You know, I had thought that this was something that we had left in the dustbin. Well, I, I think just the way we're becoming, the convenience of technology has complicated it all. So especially in the employment context, You'll have a lot of employers who have employees use their personal Gmail accounts as their business email accounts, and it creates this weird hybrid situation where you're doing something for business purposes, but it is your personal account. So sort of where are the limits of an employer's reach there? And then especially in schools, uh, what we're seeing is there may be an incident caught where a student may have like caught a fight or some type of incident that's a violation of school policy and may have posted it on Snapchat and school officials are asking students to like log into their accounts or show um, what happened and that's a situation that shouldn't happen either like yes there may have been a violation but the student's privacy rights to their social media shouldn't be violated just because you're an adult with authority in that situation so too wrong so make a right (laughs) yeah so i think this bill is important because it really like while we all should like i think ECPA does a good job in covering privacy protections of digital data i think this covers the situation that 
are a little bit more sensitive because you do have this power dynamic where employees and students don't feel empowered to question someone who may be asking for information that they feel is very private. Now, returning to the New York Electronic Communications Privacy Act, what can our listeners that happen to be in New York do to support this bill at this point? And then furthermore, what can other listeners throughout the country do to hopefully get a ball rolling in their state to replicate what's been done in California and what hopefully will be done in New York? Yeah, so um, listeners in New York, we have a webpage, nyclu.org slash ECPA, um, where information about the bill, the bill itself, and action alerts are. The action alert is great because you can click on it and send an email to your legislator. But um, really right now, going into session, what we're trying to do is get as much support as we can behind the bill, both from the community and the legislature, so New Yorkers can reach out to their legislator and ask them to support this bill. And then on the flip side, if you're active in any community organizations or groups or business associations who find these issues to be important, we'd love to have them as supporters of the bill because it helps to show that it's not just the Civil Liberties Union or, or like, it's sort of typical folks who care about these issues um, that understand and care about these issues, but it, it's sort of a universal concern when it comes to privacy around digital or digital privacy in particular. And then around the country, not to, to our own, own organization's horn, but I would suggest um, reaching out to the affiliate office of the American Civil Liberties in your state because um, we do coordinate on these issues and there are a number of affiliates who we're exploring the idea of introducing this legislation and a few others that did introduce or are planning to do it next year. Um, so it really is just a, a capacity question for that office, but it helps to when they know that constituents care about these issues. So I would suggest reaching out to our office, um, our your, the local affiliate office, and then also just check the national ACLU page because Again, we all coordinate on the state level, but also federally. And I think in light of the president-elect and his potential cabinet members' positions on these issues, we're looking to do a lot of affirmative work on the federal level as well on the state level. So there will be a sort of platter of options for people to take some steps in advocacy for either local legislation or um, federal legislation in the next year. Now, before we let you go, I can't let you get away without venting, as probably we all have, about the current zeitgeist post-election as it concerns civil liberties, privacy, encryption et al. But I think it would be very interesting to hear a perspective from a legislative council like yourself from civil liberties. Yeah, we're very concerned in around the privacy issues that, like, Election night, I was like, we have to get ECPA passed. <laughs> and we're sort of looking to get a lot of privacy legislation moving because the concern is that in New York State, we don't have many protections. And I feel like this is one of those areas that people fail to really appreciate the sort of great impact of it. And often when I talk to people and have to explain it, they have no clue that they currently do not have protections over certain digital data or certain practices that they may do are like not protected in any way. 
So I think it is a major concern that we're pushing. And I think the other lens that we're looking through is understanding that like mass surveillance and policing practices and a lot of issues don't affect everyone the same. And there's certain communities that are particularly vulnerable to um, violations of their civil liberties and particularly um, privacy rights. So in this next year, we've developed a few Know Your Rights trainings in our trying to just educate community members on how to increase their own digital safety um, by either telling them to use Signal or doing other um, sort of teach-ins with technologists, but also talking about what we know so far. Um, This is an interesting area of law, especially in this moment, because it's a lot of issues that are evolving. So it's like we read the news like everyone else find out about something and then try to figure out a solution. So right now we're all working really long hours just trying to like grasp what's the worst case scenario based on the appointments to date and what we know so far from Trump and Pence's platforms and policies and trying to figure out what is possible in the next year to get done and what will require a more long-term sort of coordinated legislative and litigation strategy. I would imagine a lot of those uh, meetings and discussions involve a lot of cringing, a lot of teeth teeth biting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and like it just trying I think since election day it's kind of like it a daily process of trying to understand the gravity of what is going on and what is about to happen because I think with having a president-elect who didn't really have many policies coming into office and had no experience in government, there's a lot of open questions of, well, this was said during the campaign trail, so will this really happen? And then our own understanding of sort of loopholes and gaps in the law where just a change in effect secretary of a certain department or change of a president can make the difference in between how much one's rights will be infringed. So it's really just us trying to understand and figure out what to expect and what we can do. Do you think that the silver lining is that folks will feel more motivated to care about these issues, whereas before people may have either uh, just may not have felt it needed attention or either gave Obama a pass and now maybe they will have a light bulb over their head? Yeah, I think it's we have an interesting challenge right now because I think there is a lot of interest. We're getting tons of volunteers and people who just want to absorb information to understand what's going on to figure out how they can be an advocate. But there's also this competition of concerns where everything's a concern and we only know what's been threatened. So how do you make calculations for what to do when some concerns seem more immediate than others, but you don't want to drop the ball on any particular group who's threatened right now or particular issue that may be of concern next year because anything can change once um, Inauguration Day comes around. So I think that our greatest challenge right now is trying to make sure that no one as a group or faction of society is left out of our analysis and no issue is sort of left without comprehensive analysis because we sort of see these major concerns that is being pushed out in the media or through something that some official says a 
each day. Well, we definitely appreciate all of your work, and we thank you for continuing that. And we appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we hope you all the best in making the ECPA reality. Thanks for having me. All right, Rashida Richardson, Legal Counsel from New York Civil Liberties Union. So that about wraps things up. We hope you enjoyed Episode 2 of the Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will have time to join us for the next episode. And head over to www.privacypatriots.org, where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. And keep watching The Watchers. Stay tuned as we give you the information that you need to keep your information your own.